Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. Either you're with us or you are with the terrorists. If you've got health care already, then you can keep your plan if you are satisfied with it. Donald Trump is not going to be president of the United States. Take it to a bank. Together, we will make America great again. We shall never surrender. Never surrender. It's what you've been waiting for all day. The Buck Sexton Show. Join the conversation. Call Buck toll-free at 844-900-BUCK. That's 844-900-2825. The future of talk radio. Buck Sexton. In our country, closed, shuttered, gone. Six million jobs at least, gone. And now they're starting to come back. You see what's happening with Chrysler, with Foxconn, with so many other companies wanting to come back into the United States. But we have one particular problem, and I view them as a friend. I have tremendous respect for President Xi. We have a great relationship. But there's going to be some tariffs and there's going to be some pushback on the theft of intellectual property. Welcome to the Buck Sexton show, my friends. Thank you for being here. The market has had kind of a an interesting ride today, Dow down 700 points, uh, which many are understandably a little little freaked out about. My my 401k is now a 101k. Uh, and and it wasn't much to begin with. <laughs> so, it's been a rough been a rough day for uh, retirement plans and people with with stock stock market accounts, but this was absolutely necessary. Look, you, you had two major things happen today uh, with the administration, well, with the government. One is China tariffs, trade, intellectual property theft, and actually the last part of that I think is the most important. We're going to get into that in just a second, and then also this omnibus bill, which is a disaster. It really is. Uh, it's it's frustrating that this is where we are and that so many Republicans are comfortable going on TV saying, yeah, you know, it's great. It's great. No problem. Nothing to see here, folks. No problem. We will talk about that, too. Later on the show, I have uh, updates for you on the uh, Austin serial bomber. Uh, we also have a breaking news story on former director of national intelligence, Jim Clapper. I'm going to talk to you about. And uh, the Vegas shooter, there's video of him now. And I watched it all today, and I'll talk to you about that, uh, as, as well as some other topics that will come up over the course of our discussions. But first on China. China! Oh, there you go. The president is pushing back, finally, against our nearest competitor. And there's a, a lot of freak out about this but let's understand that there is this notion uh there is this notion that we can be in a world where competition just benefits everyone and there's really no winners and losers between nation states and that doesn't make sense it's not really true yes free trade is great it's made a lot of people very wealthy and the last 150 years has pulled globally more people out of poverty than all the years of human history before so I'm, I'm all about all about capitalism. I love commerce, baby. It's great. But there are other considerations for nation states as well. It can't always just be driven by quarterly earnings statements. And when we're looking at China specifically, 
and what they've been doing now, there's a problem. And I'm trying to, to piece by piece take apart the conventional wisdom. I, I can tell you more or less what a lot of conservative journals of opinion out there, various columnists are going to say, because it's the same stuff they've been saying for 20 years about China, which is, you know, let's just trade relationship. Everything will be cool. Just give it time. And things aren't getting better. In fact, from the perspective of uh, politics in China, from if you're looking at this from the angle of is our nearest competitor on the world stage becoming a more free and less bellicose place or not, uh, the answer is that it is not becoming a more free and less bellicose place. So that's it's not working for us. Um, it is something that needs to be addressed. I would recommend if you have some time, this is a little little digression, but it's it's important. It's uh, powerful, I think, if you have the time to go back, read a bit about the uh, Venona project. Lots of books written about it. But Venona was started because the, well, because we wanted to have a sense, the U.S. military and national security complex wanted to have a sense of what the Soviets were really up to. And then... We figured in terms of this, the Second World War and what the what their plans were vis-a-vis Germany, uh, were they going to have a separate piece? And, and we, we kept it going because we figured out, wait a second, there's a lot of Soviet agents that had penetrated the United States government. Now, this is pre-Internet. This is pre-mass uh, communication other than radio and printing press, right? I mean, some some television coming into into the scene pretty, pretty soon, but. You had to have people in place to steal a lot of the info that you wanted to steal. And the long-term ramifications of that theft were severe. We know that it accelerated a Russian nuclear bomb, for example, by at least, I think, 18 to 24 months, they estimate. They don't really know. right? This is just an estimate. What, what, how quickly could they have gotten there if they hadn't been purloining our nuclear secrets? And think about that for a moment. The Soviets were actually getting the crown jewel stuff. What could be more sensitive than our nuclear technology in the you know late 1940s, early 1950s? Soviets got into that. They had a lot of fellow travelers, people who ideologically were aligned with them because they felt like the Soviets, for one, had been the force that had truly defeated Nazi Germany. This is not taught to kids in school these days, but that was common among American leftists, that it was really the Soviet Union. Now, I know the battlefield losses on the Eastern Front were orders of magnitude larger than the Western Front, but they didn't think of that as, well, the Soviets had a terrible war machine to use because of the purges of Stalin. Stalin got rid of all the good generals. That was a problem. You're going to fight Nazi Germany, you probably want to have your best generals, right? Stalin was uh, had already eliminated them, liquidated them. And that led to many of the disasters on the Eastern Front. But nonetheless, the back to the theft of intellectual property that occurred there, it was civilization changing. It allowed the Soviets to punch well above their weight when it came to the military in particular, but also in economic espionage, industrial output, things like that. Their system eventually collapsed because it was obviously on faulty foundation and you don't need me to tell you that. 
But this is still not really understood in the American consciousness, that that the theft of information from us by the Soviets was a a massive national security, not just vulnerability, but loss. The same thing's happening with China right now. I, I keep repeating it because it is so important. The Chinese, we don't even know how much the Chinese are stealing. And the difference now is that they don't have to have people working in the Manhattan Project, right? They, they don't have to, although, by the way, the extent of old school Chinese espionage, too, uh, I'm sure there's a lot going on that not just the public doesn't know about, but nobody in this country knows about, including the people whose jobs uh, are to prevent any theft of intellectual property or, or military or intelligence secrets uh, by the Chinese. Uh, this has been their M.O. for decades now. This has been going on for quite a while, and because of the Internet and because of connectivity, a lot of it can be accomplished via cyber. And what would have taken one person, I mean, I, I've gone back and I've told you before about the Matrokin archives, it's worth it. Get it. You can get a copy. I think you can even, a lot of it's been posted on the internet for free. If you want to see the kind of stuff I'm talking about, what the, what did the KGB really do? What were their operations really like during the Cold War? You can find out because we have their archive. We have the KGB's archive. It was, uh, it was published years ago after the wall fell. And when you see the extent and also, honestly, the risk-taking of the operations they were willing to engage in. It, it's pretty breathtaking. But it was going after everything because they were trying to beat us and they knew that if they had the economic, if they had economic advantages, military advantages, that was going to be critical. You know, we're both big countries with a lot of natural resources and devoted, you know, devoted populations at the time to one ideology or the other. So what we see with China right now is at that level, we don't think of it that way. We got all the free traders, people at think tanks in D.C. are sitting around talking about how oh, it's so great and look at all the cheap stuff in Walmart. That's true. But that comes with a cost and not just a cost to your credit card. It's a cost of the U.S. as the global superpower over the long run. If we don't do something about it, and that is what the president is up to now. And you go back and look at the, the Clintons didn't want to stand up to China. The Bushes didn't want to stand up to China. Uh, the Obama, uh, Obama years, no standing up to China. Finally, now we have a president saying we're, we're going to change things and we're going to hold them accountable for this policy of just outright theft. It is stealing. It's interesting to me that we have a country where people seem to understand that if you were to take uh, all the you know, if you were to, to set up your own network and you were to call it BNN for the Buck News Network and all I did was just take everything that was on CNN and run it on BNN, you'd say, well, you're, you're stealing. You can't do that. And I'd say, well, but does it really matter because I just have it and, and they have it and I'm going to monetize it and they're going to have it. He said, well, yeah, of course it matters. Right. It is theft. It is stealing. Although the Buck News Network, I think I'm on to something. I think that would BNN. <laughs> We could do like a whole series of parody skits where I'm like, let's interview a few more porn stars. Maybe they met Donald Trump at one point in time. Hey, you ever meet him? You know, let's go to some strip clubs in Florida and just see if anybody happens to have ever met Donald Trump. That'll be a great assignment for our reporters. That actually happened, by the way, at CNN, not at BNN. So there you go. Yeah. And producer Mike is saying that, you know, this is this week. We're on to something here. 
But theft of intellectual property, we understand as actual theft and something that we people be sued for it. And, and there has to be protection of it, because otherwise, what's the per, what's the point of R&D? What's the point of putting forward all of this, all the resources to create, to be a producer? If you can just steal well, the Chinese have been getting a free ride on a lot of this stuff for a long time. They've been stealing. That's it is it is theft. It is theft. And our companies go up against their companies. They are now putting restrictions on the kind of exactly the kind of projects. Remember, I think it was a week or two ago. I said that what the, what the Chinese love to do is say, hey, GE, hey, IBM, let's do a joint venture. We're going to give you access to our huge market. You're going to sell a lot of stuff, which will make your shareholders happy. But you're also going to have to give us your semiconductor technology. You know, you're also going to have to show us how small you can really make those microchips for that project or whatever the case may be. This is this is meaningful. And what it what it really comes down to is there are considerations that have to go into our discussions of trade with China that aren't just about how do we make the most money the fastest? You know, you, you might have a great business plan for selling PlayStation 4 in Iran, but if you try, you're, well, actually, I don't know what the laws are right now based on the Obama-era sanctions, but generally speaking, if you try, you're probably going to go to prison because there's all, all kinds of criminal restrictions on what kind of business you can do with the Iranians, right? So we understand that there's more than just how do you make money here. We understand that there is a long-term plan that has to be put into effect. Does that mean it's going to come without some pain? In the short- I don't think so. I, I think this is going to be it's gonna be rough. You better strap in here because the Chinese are going to push back. It's like we finally decided no more free ride. No more free ride. And a lot of folks who just like the status quo because the status quo was enriching them personally or enriching their business are going to kick and scream about this but we need to understand what's really at stake here and uh, while I don't think that we are quite as on a uh, dangerous path as we were with the Soviets with the with the Chinese give it some time history tends to suggest that it's unlikely that the two superpowers are going to stay best buddies for all that long we got a whole lot more show. I gave you a sense of what's coming up. If you want to weigh in, by all means, 844-900-2825, 844-900-BUCK. We will hit a break. i got to talk to you about this omnibus bill. We've also got George, uh, Gordon Chang, who will be joining us sor- uh, shortly to talk about what he thinks of all this China mess. He's my um, among my very favorite analysts on all things China. So uh, we'll have him joining us in a few minutes. Stay with me. Uh, we're losing $375 billion with China. It could be $504 billion, depending on the way you count. A lot of different ways of counting, but no matter how you count, it's bad. And we're doing something that will be the start of making trade with China more fair. We're so far down, and our presidents, frankly, our past presidents, should never have allowed this to happen. This has been many, many years. Now, I think there's another another approach or another uh, way to analyze what we're doing to China and how China could respond, which is, you know, how outraged can they really be that if they're going to charge a 
you know, a 15% tariff on something, we'll charge a 15% tariff on something. If we catch them stealing our intellectual property, we're going to retaliate. But on the trade issue, where it really is about the numbers, seems to me that this should be, you know, reasonable minds could prevail here. You know? I don't think they will on the Chinese side of things because they like the advantage that they've had and they've got their own domestic political considerations to worry about. Very interesting. I, I mentioned, uh, I like to talk about the Soviets because I think that puts it into, that starts to put us in the frame of mind here. Where, in, in, But instead of thinking about it first and foremost as a military uh, competition between two superpowers, we're in an economic competition between two superpowers. But this was uh, a quote that I, I saw online. It was actually in the Times from a former China analyst for the FBI who, who said the, the following to the Times, quote, if a beach were a target, the Russians would send in a sub, frogmen would steal ashore in the dark of night and collect several buckets of sand and take them back to Moscow. The U.S. would send over satellites and produce reams of data. The Chinese would send in a thousand tourists, each assigned to collect a single grain of sand. When they returned, they would be asked to shake out their towels and they would end up knowing more about the sand than anyone else. In other words, the Chinese have infinite patience. End quote. Uh, that's what we're up against. Now you start. Now it all makes sense, right? Uh, cyber theft here, economic espionage there, all the things that we're seeing. Over the long term, China wants to be able to dictate global economic policy. China thinks that it should in the future become the country that everyone turns to for leadership, for direction, for orders, however, however it all shakes out. Um, so I, I think we need to start looking at this in that context and everything else start to make a lot more sense. We've got Gordon joining us. I know I meant to get to the uh, omnibus bill. I will right after Gordon joins us here and we're going to get into this. Look, guys, you know, I voted for Trump because I, he's a vessel for an agenda his agenda and it needs to be enacted and i don't want to hear all the kind of both sides of the mouth talk from paul ryan about how you know this is a good spending bill because it's not we'll talk more about that though stay with me i've been speaking with the highest chinese representatives including the president and i've asked them to reduce the trade deficit immediately by 100 billion dollars it's a lot so that would be anywhere from 25%, depending on the way you figure, to maybe something even more than that. But we have to do that. The word that I want to use is reciprocal. When they charge 25% for a car to go in, and we charge 2% for their car to come into the United States, that's not good. That's how China rebuilt itself. President Trump speaking about China and tariffs and Closing the trade gap earlier today, as you know, uh, markets not reacting so well to it, at least for today. But we take a longer view here. And to help us take that long view, we've got Gordon Chang on the line. He is the author of The Coming Collapse of China. Also, you can go to GordonChang.com for all of his latest. Gordon, thanks for joining. Thank you so much, Buck. What do you think about the president's announcement? Let's just start there. I think it was absolutely necessary. You know, no one wants to... Um engage in what could be the beginning of a very long campaign and struggle with China. But unfortunately, um, you know, we've tried every other thing, trying to accommodate the Chinese 
and it hasn't worked. So, for instance, we had that September 2015 agreement between President Obama and Xi Jinping announced in the Rose Garden that neither country would steal the commercial secrets of the other. Well, you know, the Chinese just continued to do that. And so, um, you know, at this point, we have no choice but to impose severe costs on China. No one likes it, but unfortunately, there's no choice. What do you think the Chinese reaction to this is going to be? Well, they said that they uh, um, don't want to see the start of a trade war, which is incorrect, because you can accuse President Trump of many things, but you can't accuse him of starting a trade war with China, because the Chinese have been engaged in a trade war against us for decades, and we have been oblivious. So, um, you know, the Chinese will huff and puff, but we got to remember they don't really have very many cards to play, because last year, 88.8% of their overall merchandise trade surplus related to sales to the United States. And that's up from an already astounding 68.0% in 2016. You just can't battle with um, a trade deficit country and expect to win. Gordon, we know that China has been engaging in currency manipulation. It has tariffs up. Uh, Trump has been sounding the alarm about this, actually not just during his presidency and campaign, but for a long time before that as well. Uh, do, do you think that this is going to affect the way that we deal with China, though, on other issues? I mean, essentially, are, are they going to make our lives harder now dealing with North Korea and, and in other places? I mean, or is this going to be mostly restricted to a trade to trade issue? I don't think it will be restricted. You know, the U.S. for a very long time has tried to stovepipe, uh, as they say. In other words, to not let trade um, disputes affect, for instance, cooperation on climate control or whatever. Um, you know, at this particular time, though, um, I don't think the Chinese think that way, and I don't think we should think that way either. Um, but I do believe that if we impose costs on Beijing that are so severe that they very well may have no choice but to be better on other issues, such as North Korea. You know, this is going to get uh, very difficult, um, but we hold high cards, and uh, the only way Chinese, the Chinese can win a trade war with us is if we refuse to exercise the political will um, that's necessary. But we have all the tools in the toolbox, as they say, so we should win this one. Now, for people out there, just so everyone understands what the likely near-term ramifications are, and everyone, we're speaking to Gordon Chang. He's the author of The Coming Collapse of China, and he also writes for various publications. You can see everything at Gordon uh, GordonChang.com. Uh, Gordon, the... Pain for the Chinese side of the equation will be what? Well, it could very well be um, throwing their economy into, um, you know, into chaos and turmoil. could be the end of the Chinese political system as we know it. Um, All sorts of things could happen because right now China is not growing at the 6.9% pace that they claimed for last year. It's actually growing at less than half that, which means the U.S. economy is legitimately growing faster than China's. Um, they've got a lot of debt. They're accumulating debt at the pace of about 20% a year. They're in trouble. And um, so anything that Trump can do to um, undermine confidence in China will go a very long way to changing the Chinese political system. Um, That's not our goal, of course, but um, we have the ability to put Xi Jinping out on the street. What's the good side of this now? Let's say that Trump Enacts, I mean, you already did sign today some of these these actions, but if he continues on this path and things go as well as they could be 
reasonably expected to go for the American side. The folks listening to, to us right now across the country, Gordon, uh, is there is there a uh, a light at the end of the tunnel? Because right now people are just seeing the Dow get pummeled hundreds and hundreds of points today, and they're saying, what the heck is going on? Yeah, well, you know, the markets don't like uncertainty. They don't like disruptions. But the current uh, relationship with China, where they take somewhere between 225 to $600 billion of U.S. intellectual property a year, is completely unsustainable. Um, so um, this trade relationship, and indeed the relationship with Beijing in general, has got to change. Um, so, um, yeah, the markets won't like it, um, and it could very well get worse. But, um, you know, the Chinese know that um, Trump holds... Um, ways to really in, cause extreme pain for China. So, um, is this more of an, I mean, Gord, can I ask, is this more of a national security imperative in your mind, or is it an economic imperative, or is it an, uh, just a, a straight-up combination of both, 50-50? Oh, it, it's certainly both, because um, the way we pay for our military, the way we defend ourselves, is having a vibrant economy. And the Chinese are taking intellectual property, which is the heart of the American economy, we don't make things as we used to. What we do is we innovate, we create technology, and the Chinese are stealing it. And that is a mortal threat to the United States. It's not just economy, it's national security as well. So um, it's a combination of both. And so this is an existential challenge to American society. We actually had the FBI director, Christopher Ray talking about this exact issue. Ultimately, is going to have a real impact on American jobs, American businesses, and American consumers. So is that, in fact, Gordon, your read, too, that, that this is going to have down-the-line impacts that will be helpful? Well, I think it has to be helpful because we can't really be any worse than we are at this particular time. Um, and I actually think because uh, we, uh, I think the Chinese are going to be low to retaliate if they believe that President Trump is political will. You know, they have been um, successful at a trade war, or whatever you want to call it, for a very long time because the Americans have tried to integrate China into the international system, not impose costs, try to be accommodating. Um, but, um, you know, if a president of the United States is willing to use all the elements of American power, the Chinese are going to realize that they can no longer continue to do what they've done. I mean, increasingly predatory trade practices, closing off the Chinese market to American companies, stealing U.S. intellectual property. I mean, what's there to like with about this? Is there a way, is there a future in which you see, Gordon, a, a China that is no longer in the grips of uh, authoritarianism? Is this also going to have a long-term political effect if the United States, as you say, uses all of the tools at its disposal and sees this through? Well, first of all, Buck, China is not in the grips of authoritarianism. It's now in the grips of totalitarianism. Xi Jinping, the current Chinese ruler, is taking China back to more control. Um, his belief is that he should have absolute control over the party, uh, the Communist Party, and the Communist Party should have absolute control over society. And he's been very effective in both of those goals. So this is a very different China than it was five, ten years ago. Um, and yes, um, that system is fragile. Um, we know that there are a lot of people in China who don't like what's going on. Xi Jinping has been destabilizing the Communist Party's relatively stable, institutionalized system that we've seen over the last five, ten years. So a lot of things could go very wrong, especially if Trump decides that he is not going to take it anymore. And I think that probably our president is getting there. May not be there yet, Buck, but um, you can see with the way we've uh, defined China, 
as a threat in the national security strategy and in the national defense strategy, and with what he's been doing on tariffs and trade, it's very much a different relationship. And I think Beijing has got to be extremely alarmed at these developments. Gordon Chang is the author of The Coming Collapse of China. Also, follow him on uh, Twitter as well. Gordon, thank you so much for, uh, for being with us here on the show. We always appreciate it. Thank you, Buck. Uh, all right, everybody, we're going to roll into a quick break. We're going to be back with a whole lot more, including uh, some updates on uh, on the Vegas shooter coming later on in the show, on the Vegas shooting from some time ago. You're, you're going to want to hear that. We've got some new information to share. We'll be right back. Wait, wait, wait. I've actually got something else. Breaking news here. Oh, my. Oh, my. Bolton to replace McMaster. As National Security Advisor, another exit from the White House happening live as we are on air. Oh, my. Bolton to replace McMaster. The mustache is replacing Mr. Clean. That's right. (laughs) That's my national security analysis. All right, we got more. We'll be right back. So McMaster is out and Ambassador Bolton is in as the uh, National Security Advisor. That is the breaking news that I have for you here on the show. Um, I will tell you that McMaster always had a good reputation, but there are a few things. One is he was one of these guys who was, uh, I'm pretty sure he was in the don't say radical Islamic terror camp which i just disagree with and always have and always will so that's that's already uh that's strike one from from my perspective um but he he was a well-respected and smart guy i'm not gonna uh, there's nothing nothing but um from people that i know who worked with him and this isn't like i've i've heard from fellow journalists i'm talking about people that either worked on the mill or intel side who knew uh knew mcmaster they said he was a sharp guy and i'm sure he he did a good job for the president and you know, it's but we're we're seeing the realignment based on on policy and vision. So, you know, McMaster is not being asked to depart or is not departing of his own volition. I'm not sure how the 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 change happened. I don't know if there was a an actual uh, request for a resignation. We'll see. I just know this has literally been breaking while we're on air here. Uh, but. McMaster was a, was a, a good man and I think served as well as he could and I think probably did a very competent job as a national security advisor. Uh, but Bolton is going to be very much aligned with Trump on issues like North Korea, uh, on the Iran deal, which is going to be a whole, that's a whole new ball game for Iran. You want to talk about disrupting the status quo. Um Bolton is not going to take the nonsense on on Iran. And he has a mustache that really is it should be able to be trademarked. His mustache is awesome. I heard somebody say that Trump said that he wanted to be shaved once. I, I remember that was like a rumor out there. I, I completely disagree. The Bolton stash is a great thing. It's up there with the Bernanke beard, which was also I mean, th- think about Bernanke without the beard. It's like Samson without the hair. It just doesn't work. It doesn't make sense. I think Bolton will do a good job, and 
this is going to have, in, in terms of what this means, why, why should we all care? Uh, Iran deal, that's on the table now in a way that it wouldn't have been with McMaster in, uh, in the role of national security advisor. Or at least now you have a national security advisor who's going to be working with the president to tighten the, tighten the screws on Iran. And also on North Korea, Bolton knows the North Korea issue backwards and forwards. Uh, one more note I'll say on the uh, good side of things for Bolton. There are a lot of national security analysts who go on TV who honestly aren't very smart. I'm not going to name names because that would be mean. You want me to name names? I'll name names. I'll name them. No, no, I won't. I won't name them. Uh, but there are a lot of national security advisors. I mean, the national security analysts, not advisors. A lot of national security advisors. Uh, a lot of these analysts go on TV, and I'm like, well, the person may have spent a long time working for the government, and you know, their service may have been honorable, but they don't have very much to add to the conversation right now. A Bolton does not is not in that category. He's a very smart guy. Um, I know who the phonies are. Bolton is not a phony. I think it's really interesting that CNN in the announcement refers, it says Fox News analyst becoming national security advisor. It's like, or former U.S. ambassador to the United Nations. It's like a guy who's been in the government game for decades. Or, or that, you know, you, you could take this one or two ways here. You know, it'd be like saying man with prominent white mustache becomes national security advisor. Or the former United States ambassador to the United Nations, you know, career lawyer and diplomat who served in a bunch of Republican administrations. You take it either way, CNN, take it either way. So uh, there we have it. And also, this is just a little aside, but I think this is really meaningful. In the early days of my career, there was a show that I used to do at Fox called Red Eye. Many of you are probably familiar with it. I really... I. It was a joy to do that show. It was a really funny, good show with a great energy, and it uh, I learned a lot from doing it early on in my career. It allowed me to have a little fun. Initially, they all wanted me to be very sort of serious journalists when I got into this game, and I was like, no, nah, I've, I've got other speeds, folks. I mean, you all know that, but I'm talking about early on. And Red Eye was a place where we all got to... There, was the, there were jokes made that kind of continued on. You know, people... Learned that the name of my vehicle in college was, in fact, the Shaggin' Wagon, for example. That was on Red Eye. Yeah, it's because it was a wood-paneled station wagon that was not something that you would call a, a babe-mobile. Uh, it was great, though. Whenever somebody wanted to move their furniture, I was the coolest guy on campus because that, that thing had a caboose. had a caboose on it, the big... It, it looked it's kind of like a wagoneer. It was actually a, a roadmaster. I don't know if you're familiar with a roadmaster. But that was that was my whip, and uh, you know if there was if there was any rain and you tried to come to a quick stop, you were very likely to hydroplane through the intersection. But you know it was it was a good good situation. Um, so the shagging wagon that came from Red Eye, they, people still tweet shagging wagon at me like that's a th- that's a meme that has lasted to this day. Um, but Bolton, why am I talking about this? Because Bolton, as serious a career and as serious a man as he is, he was actually a guy who would do Red Eye, and I you know what I always respected that. I always he was he was willing to uh, to have a little fun and play along with everyone and and uh, you know let the stash be the stash you know let him do his thing so I always liked that about him and I wish him all the best I think it's I think it's great I I wholeheartedly support the, uh, support this choice by President Trump I think it's it's a it's a wise decision and he's got he's putting pieces around him right now in terms of uh, senior policy personnel that are really going to. Uh, see things his way and um, I'm I'm thinking that this is going to be good
Because it, like, it's stormy seas ahead, not just with China, Iran too, and North Korea. Whoa, Trump's taking it all on. He's back with you now, because when it comes to the fight for truth, the buck never stops. The American people didn't elect Democrats to control the United States Congress. They elected Republicans. I don't think we told the voters when we were running for the job and they gave us the privilege to come here and serve that we were going to continue to fund Planned Parenthood. We were going to restrict Second Amendment liberties, let some bureaucrats take away your Second Amendment rights, not a court of law. I don't think they said we were going to fund this gateway earmark boondoggle project and not fund the border wall. I mean, the one thing we don't fund is the one issue we all campaigned on, a border security wall, and that is not in the legislation. So it can't get any worse than this bill. I like Representative Jim Jordan, by the way. I like him. Guy guy rolls up the shirt sleeves and gets it done. Welcome to Hour 2 of the Buck Sexton Show, by the way. That was that was Jim. That was JJ right there. Dropping some truth bombs. Because this omnibus bill, which they passed in the night, you know, and, and they it's 2,232 pages. By the time the bill was passed to the time that it will go, well, assuming it makes it through the Senate, what, we run out of money, technically, we don't really run out of money, but the government is no longer funded as of, what, Saturday, right? Yeah. So, no one read this thing. It's literally not possible for the members of Congress who voted on it to read it. But everyone just looks at the top line numbers, and if they get the little thing that they want, they're happy. This is not the way it's supposed to run, folks. This is not the way this is supposed to happen. And I, I like talking about all the good things. I'm willing to take the the heat for Trump's for Trump's policies uh, on China and and North Korea and uh, the the breaking with consensus and the shattering of the echo chamber. I'm all for it, but there also has to be some consistency here for. Spending for the wall, for all of the other stuff that we were promised. As I said, I'm in favor of the Trump agenda. Do I find Trump to be uh, highly entertaining and in many ways just a force of nature? Absolutely. But first and foremost, I want what he said he would accomplish during his campaign. I, I am all in favor of it. And I want it to happen. And I know many of you listening, most of you listening do too. I cannot sit here in good conscience and say to myself, yeah, this is, this is, what, this is what we signed up for. I mean, Mick, Mick Mulvaney, who's a sharp guy, by the way. Uh, Mick Mulvaney's a smart dude, but you know, he, he likes it. But I, what, what choice does he really have? trying to get the president's priorities funded and this omnibus bill does that it funds national defense as you heard sarah mentioned it gives the troops the increase that we were trying to get them in their in their compensation it funds opioids it funds school safety it's a tremendous increase in workforce development something that doesn't get a lot of attention but this administration has been pushing since we got here it actually starts taking a look uh, uh, at funding infrastructure um, and it also does a lot of what we wanted not everything we wanted but a lot of what we wanted on immigration i think that's a little i think he's being a bit of a salesman there be honest with you i you know it doesn't doesn't really do what they want on immigration okay let's get into some of these numbers here 
So we're we're going to look at this from the perspective of of two important areas or two main two main regions. One you have on the one side you have uh, the president's priorities, right? I've actually got a little pad in front of me so I can make sure I don't go into one of my digressions where I forget what I was talking about, and all of a sudden we're having a discussion about hoplite tactics, circa you know five hundred BC. Um, but here we go. Uh, you've got priorities, the president, and then you've also got the debt, which we'll talk about too. Debt and spending. Okay. So presidential priorities. Yes, it gives more funding for the troops. And I can be persuaded that that is a good idea. Although keep in mind that the decrease in military funding was primarily a function of the sequester which was a decrease in the increase in the rate of federal government spending that Republicans agreed to some years ago after Democrats assumed they would not. And then very rapidly thereafter, Republicans are like, whoa, whoa, that's way too much, way too much austerity. In terms of the, so we're just looking at priorities here. We're going to get into the debt and spending side of it in a second. I know this is, this is, it's like we're having a wild, wild and crazy party right now. This is, this is like a Malibu beach party we're having, talking about the debt and the deficit. But it's important. It's important stuff. So what do we have here? We have 33 miles of border fence in Texas. $1.5 billion for the wall. That is, to call that a start is a little bit like me saying, you know, I am going to buy a house, so I am going to put $3 in this piggy bank. It is true. That that is a start, but it's tough for me to get all that excited about that. I think that's fair, right? 33 miles, got a lot more miles to go. And we got a midterm coming up. We do not have an endless uh, an endless array of options, especially if the uh, midterms don't go our way, to get this thing done. So... You got 33 miles in Texas, $1.57 billion for the wall. No one's read this thing. Still has to go through the Senate. And look, Trump could veto it, but I don't think he will because all of his White House is saying very nice things about it. We got, do we have Paul Ryan talking, talking, whispering sweet nothings about this omnibus bill? You know, Mr. Like Fiscal Sanity, you know, he, he, he's not much of a fighter, you know? Oh, he's, yeah, we got him. Let's, let's hear what Mr. Ryan has to say. The Speaker of the House about the wall. Play it. Uh, 1.6 billion. The 1.6 billion is the total. Is that wrong? Because I only heard 650 million go no, to the wall. No, it's 1.6 total for the 1.6 right. for the entire. But the border also you need you need fences, you need cameras, you need right. electronic devices, you need these um the, you need the the aerial devices to be able to police it in the mountainous areas. You can't build a wall over sure. a mountain, so you need cameras and you need drones up there. So it's a border wall system that the border patrol tells us they need, and so we fund their request based on what they say they need to secure the border, right. and it's different kinds of. Wall based on different kinds of conditions on the ground. And that's what we fund. With a billion dollars? It's a big border there, Paul. It's a big border. I, I, let's, not, let's not be silly. $1.57 billion is not going to get it done at all. I mean, I know he's not saying the whole wall is going to be built or fun, but this is, this is a drop in the bucket. So let's not pretend. It also doesn't do anything about sanctuary cities. So to say, I guess they're just going to fight that out in the courts exclusively, but to say that that is um, 
you know, to say that that's getting our immigration priorities is, I think, uh, a stretch. I think that's a stretch. And no one has read this thing, which is also just fundamentally an issue. And in terms of the priorities of the president, you know, not a lot of enforcement dollars here for uh, immigration and customs enforcement. N- n- nothing really new on that. It looked tough to get excited about. It, I'll be honest with you. And I know we're supposed to say, no, like this is all, all going to be great. MAGA, everything's going to be amazing. You got 256 to 167 was the vote in the House. Chuck Schumer likes it. I don't know. How does that make you feel about it? Chuck Schumer. Let's hear what he has to say. Overall, we Democrats are very happy with what we've been able to accomplish on a number of very important priorities to the middle class in America. Infrastructure, education, opioid treatment, mental health, child care. This spending agreement brings that era of austerity to an unceremonious end and represents one of the most significant investments in the middle class in decades. If that doesn't put you on edge, folks, I don't know what will. If it doesn't make you think twice about this, that you got Chuck Schumer, who's basically talking about how amazing it is, we got to have a long talk. The debt is $21 trillion. I got involved in politics and media at the height of the Tea Party, really. Right or at right right around that, and when I when I first started doing this, it was when the Tea Party had just had that massive wave in the midterm election in 2010, and uh, it was all about the debt, the deficit, and spending. And Obama was spending us into oblivion, and he was trillions and trillions and trillions of dollars. We understood then that this was a problem. Mathematically, it is a problem. One that will eventually choke out, uh, uh, block out and choke off a lot of, or I guess choke out if I want to get really aggressive about it, you know, there's that, uh, private sector spending. Uh, One that is going to mean that service on the debt is going to be more than military spending within 10 years on our current trajectory. So paying back the interest on this debt is going to be more than we are spending on the military within a decade. It is too much. As I've been saying to you, this does not become obvious until it is too late. It is a a problem that will require a mass of political will to tackle in advance of the crisis. Or we can just wait for the crisis. What I see with this spending bill, this may be unpopular with some folks, but this is what I see, is just let's have a spending free-for-all, a spending bonanza. What do you what do the Democrats want? What do the Republicans want? Let's just get it. You know, this is sending the kids into the Toys R Us. May it rest in peace. Yeah, I know. Sad, right? It's like a part of my childhood's going away. Uh, sending them in and saying, you know, well, you all get to don't worry about the credit card bill. You all get to get whatever you want. Of course, everyone's going to be happy. What happens when that bill comes due? What happens when the bill comes due? And it's going to be on us. It's going to be on on. The generation below the below, below the boomers, the generation below the millennials, the generations that are coming up that we haven't even named yet. They're going to have to pay back uh, higher taxes, slower growth, 
more all kinds of government restrictions and regulations in order to try to deal with the economic dislocations that will come from this. It's bad. It is bad. And I'm you know, I, I see a willingness to speak the truth and to be politically brave and to show leadership from this administration on a number of it. Look, immigration is a totally different discussion now because of Donald Trump. I'm not forgetting how we got here. I, I respect that and I know that. But he's got to, you know, you can't get that excited just because, you know, the quarterback is taking you 50 yards down the field, right? You got to put points on the board. It has to be more than just the effort. And with immigration, this is not putting points up on the board. And with spending, this is, uh, I'm, I'm going to really belabor the football analogy here. This is, this is a fumble. This is not good. Um, I'm, I think Rand Paul, we can expect, Rand Paul has been, I, I picture him right now in like a montage in a tracksuit, you know, just just training and getting all fired up for what will inevitably be a lot of news hits and, you know, maybe some filibustering or, you know, whatever he's got up his sleeve, because this is this is his sweet spot right now. And the problem is he's, he's right. We can't keep doing this. Why are not we hearing more people say that? I understand there are a lot of issues where you got to give the you got to give the Trump administration leeway to do things differently, do things their way. You know, the, the, our goals are aligned. I want success for them. I want success for all of us. So I, I'm like, all right, let's see. Let's see if he can get it done. He's he's the guy that had a 95 percent chance of losing the election, according to The New York Times on Election Day. He, he's we got to give him a, a wide berth to get some things done. Spending is spending. Twenty one trillion dollars, twenty one trillion dollars. This is not. This is not responsible for our government right now. It just isn't. It isn't. And I know that's not what people want to hear. It's like saying that the, the party is out of beer. I am the wah-wah showing up, turning off the music, telling everybody they have school tomorrow. But that's what's happening right now. We cannot keep doing this. And just understand this. Schumer and all the rest of them. If we hit a, a big correction in the market and there's an economic downturn and we see some rising unemployment and, you know, we have a I'm not even talking about some big reset, which some people think is coming. But that's a whole separate discussion you know, or, or, or a jubilee even. Um, but I'm talking about just a real shift in the uh, economic winds. They're going to. Oh, my gosh. They're going to all make it Trump's fault. It's all Trump's fault. All the spending. It's so irresponsible. It's all look at what he's done. All this military spending, everything else. I don't think that they're in this, too. That's not how it's going to play out. All right, 844-900-2825 if you want to call in. I've, uh, I appreciate that a lot of you have called in. I'm sorry I have not gotten to your calls on the lines, but we will try to get some if you're, if you're willing to be patient. We'll try to get some coming up here in a little bit. Oh, wait, I, I'm sorry. There's one more thing before we – I know we're going really late, John. Pardon me for a second here. Why are we funding Planned Parenthood? Why is the government funding Planned Parenthood? We have a Republican House, Republican Senate, and Republican President. Why? I need I need an answer to that question, folks. That's about a lot more than money. When do we fight on that? We're going to wait till after the midterms. Lives are at stake there. You know it as well as I do. All right, now we'll hit a break. We'll be right back. So I've, I asked the team in here on the omnibus bill. I figured that there must be some 
entertaining Rand Paul audio out there. Because, as we know, this is where this is where Rand steps in. This is where Rand goes big. Where he puts away the surfboard. and just, I just always think he's like a surfer. I don't know why. I know he's from Kentucky. Not a lot of waves there, but nonetheless. He's like, hey, dude, hang 10. He's very mellow. But he writes, uh, he's been live tweeting as he reads through the 2,232-page long omnibus bill. And here are some of the here are some of the the Randy Randian, pardon me, highlights. On page two oh seven, he writes, two thousand plus pages to go, reading about the ever wasteful six billion dollar National Science Foundation. He also put a photo of himself with the printed out bill, which he said took over two hours to print in his office. And I will I will tell you it is quite large. If you lifted this thing, you could wail on your pecs and get bulging biceps, bro. Do you even lift, bro? I mean, it's it's serious. It's a big, it's a big bill. You will be amazed when you see how uh, how many pages it is. And when was the last time you read a two thousand page book? I've actually never read a two thousand page book. So you could tell me if you've ever done that. I think um, maybe I've gotten up into like the eight hundreds or nine hundreds once or twice. I don't think I've ever. I don't think I've ever broken four digits with a book. Um, I don't know, you know, con- true, true confessions by Buck Sexton on air. So, uh, page 240. Oh, here's a, here's a bright spot. Good news for states' rights. No funds will be spent to prevent any state's medical marijuana initiatives. Page 278. $961 million to destroy our chemical weapons? Who was it exactly who convinced our government to pay billions to develop weapons we now find deplorable? Uh, he's got more. Here are some highlights. This is from Senator Paul's account Twitter. He's he's live tweeting his reading of the 2,232 page bill. One million dollars for the Cultural Antiquities Task Force. I will be honest with you. I did not. I was not aware of that, that we had that six point two five million for the Ambassadors Fund for Cultural Preservation. Twenty million dollars for countering foreign state propaganda. $12 $12 million for countering disinformation and pressure. What does that even mean? $5 million for Vietnam Education Foundation grants. $15 million for USAID promoting international higher education between universities. Wow. $51 million to promote international family planning. Why, why are we paying for other places family planning? Is it, this is your tax dollars. I mean, I could go... I could go all day with this. Rand Paul literally is going all day with this. Folks, my friends, fellow conservatives, patriots, Americans, do we care about this? Yes or no? He's back with you now, because when it comes to the fight for truth, the buck never stops. Facebook is a, is a wonderful American company, but it's no longer a company, Stuart. It's a country. And they have enormous power. They do enormous good. But uh, we need to talk about whether Facebook has been a good steward of, of our data. We need to talk about how we can uh, preserve the good, good aspects of Facebook while stopping the corrosive effects. Their platform was weaponized by a foreign adversary, and there's still uh, many questions about whether that adversary worked with 
the Trump campaign and whether that whether the Trump campaign uh, used Facebook uh, to amplify uh, stolen hacked information that the Russians were using in their campaign. Facebook at the center of the news this week for a bunch of different reasons. For Democrats, it's just Facebook is no longer among their favorite companies because they, they blame Facebook for Hillary's loss at some level. And so there's this surge of we need to do something about Facebook. It's been weaponized. It's an information weaponization platform that's just doing terrible things to us all over the place. And yeah, what would, uh, is that Representative Swalwell? Eric Swalwell? I actually don't even know who that is. Yeah, that's Representative Swalwell must be. Okay, I, I don't even know who that guy is, to be honest with you. 435 of these folks running around. There's a lot of them. So, uh, and that was also, that was Senator Kennedy before that. Here's the thing that's going on right now. Mark Zuckerberg has been making the rounds, doing interviews, talking to people, and he is showing some, uh, showing some, I don't know if remorse is the right word, but he's definitely saying, you know, okay, you know, we're 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 sorry for what's what's happened here. Um, this was a major breach of trust, and and I'm really sorry that this happened. Um, you know, we have a basic responsibility to protect people's data, and if we can't do that, then then we don't uh, deserve to have the opportunity to serve people. So, our responsibility now is to make sure that this doesn't happen again, and. There are a few basic things that I think we need to do to ensure that. One is uh, making sure that uh, developers uh, like uh, Alexander Kogan, who got access to a lot of information and then um, improperly used it, just don't get access to as much information going forward. I mean, Zuckerberg has all the charm of a pungent burp. So I don't think his political future is what some others do. Although, then again, hello! Some people get really far without having much in the way of charm. Um, but Zuckerberg is not a guy that I think is going to get the masses on his side. It's it's also hard to it's it's hard to pull off the everyman routine of a politician if you're wealthy. It's really hard if you're like seventy billion dollars wealthy. That's going to be a tough one. Like, oh, I've struggled with bills too. It's difficult. Um, but wh- why he is taking this position is is a surprise to me because Facebook didn't really do anything wrong. Um. Facebook could also very easily just say everyone needs to calm down and stop acting like this is such a big deal. Instead, though, they are, and this is from the CEO on down, saying, oh, no, we'll, we'll address this right away. Now, there are a couple things here. Maybe this is just the PR strategy. Uh, maybe this is just about not wanting to upset users and look bad. And the Silicon Valley companies spend a lot of time trying to convince everybody that they're just these forces for good. Um. So there's that there's that aspect of it. But there might be something else at work here. I just want to just want to experiment this for a second, because there's some other stuff that Zuckerberg said like this. I, I actually am not sure we shouldn't be regulated. Um, you know, I think in general, technology is an increasing, um, increasingly important trend in, in the world. And I actually think the question is more what is the right regulation rather than yes or no, should it be regulated? Why would the CEO of one of the most profitable companies in the history of the planet, I mean, the capital efficiency of Facebook is is like a wonder of the modern age. How much money it makes on the money it spends. It's incredible. 
It is a like the biggest ATM machine to have ever been built. Why would the CEO be be saying this regulations? Maybe it's because he ideologically is just inclined to accept state intervention in his enterprise. That's possible. That's possible. And right now he's just kind of saying this stuff because Facebook has gotten a bit of heat. People are all, but but the heat's going to pass because it's all about Trump. And now they now that Cambridge Analytica is increasingly looking like it's not even a good psychological warfare operation. I mean, it's such nonsense. And I knew it was nonsense from the start. I've known people who have been like, oh, we're going to take this and we're going to. Anytime somebody tells you they've got an algorithm for you that's going to answer some question that nobody else has been able to answer, you need to be very skeptical. All right. It's not that easy. Well, I'm just going to have an algorithm that's going to tell you, you know, everything you need to know. Nope. Very difficult to do. Um, but there's another possibility here, which is that Facebook understands that government regulation, that big government and big business go hand in hand. This has been very true of banks and investment banking, a lot of the other financial sector activities out there. They're like, yeah, Dodd-Frank, it's very expensive, it's bad for us, but it also is anti-competitive because regulatory costs, as we all know, are quite real. And if Facebook has to deal with all these regulations and if that then involves you know, legal costs and just compliance costs for the uh, for the staff and everyone else it just means that the likelihood of there being competitor social media networks is lessened there's nothing that facebook does that's all that that that's all that magical it's just the the best of what has been tried in this realm it wasn't even the first as you know sorry friendster in my space uh, wasn't the first one but it was one that caught on the most and it hasn't really evolved in amazing ways since the initial first few years of it. I mean, it's, you know, it, there are a lot of other places where you can do pretty similar stuff. But it is right now the dominant force. It is the 800-pound gorilla in the social media space. And so the mere invitation for government regulation, to me, seems to be indicative of, yeah, let's regulate it and let, let's make it so that any other company that wants to do this is going to have incredible compliance costs, have real liability under the FTC, for example, for any any misuse of data. Compliance with data misuse issues is going to go skyrocket. And the more the government gets involved, the higher the cost of business becomes, as you know. Facebook can handle any cost of business, really. I mean, realistically. Could somebody who wants to create something that's better than Facebook, which right now we think, oh, that's not possible. But the history of innovation tells us it's just a matter of time. And it is quite possible. I, I think we're going to reach a, a place where there's a political schism in the social media world, meaning people just realize that you can't build a business around YouTube and Facebook or you can't be reliant on YouTube and Facebook for your business when, in fact, they can decide to shut you off because they've changed their mind about firearms, they've changed their mind about conservative speech or any number of things. So there's going to be more of a push for this. And everything seems like it's going to last forever until it doesn't and nothing lasts forever. So that's what I have to say about Facebook. And I, I've got some uh, other news that I meant to get to earlier. I'm going to return to now on James Clapper. I almost said Jake Tapper because it rhymes with Clapper. That's a different dude. Uh, on, on Clapper, the former DNI might be this is the. This is one of these stories I read and I go, you know, it doesn't seem like a big deal. 
This could be a very big deal, actually. What am I talking about? Well, as though we're finding out who's going to get the final rose, you're going to have to wait until after the break. So James Clapper is very chummy with the press. Um, I don't know if he's now officially a CNN contributor, but he's on CNN all the time. And I know that former CIA director Brennan is an NBC senior national security analyst. And I think Cla- is Clapper. I think Clapper's on contract with CNN now. Very chummy with and very anti-Trump, very chummy with journalists and has a history of uh, difficulty with the truth. In public, regarding the public, Clapper is nonetheless very welcome over at CNN, where they think that bureaucrats of long service equals uh, genius and, and un, unimpeachable integrity, which is unfortunately not the case. But something very interesting came up today about Clapper specifically, and this is Catherine Harrod from Fox News reporting on it. The allegation is that the director of national intelligence, James Clapper, this is the person who oversees all of the intelligence agencies and whose primary responsibility is the protection of classified information. They say the following, that he, quote, provided inconsistent testimony about contacts with the media, including CNN. Of course, he is now a CNN contributor. And based on our reporting, uh, the line of questioning by the committee focused on that Trump Tower briefing in January of 2017, which is when the president was told for the first time about the unverified Trump dossier. And as you remember, that briefing was leaked to the media. And that's really how the dossier story got into the mainstream. The efforts of Fusion GPS in the fall of 2016 to do that really had not been successful. But the leaking of the briefing at Trump Tower really accomplished that. One thing that has been lost somewhat in all the discussions over Russia collusion and all that is... Where did the leaks come from? The leaks to the New York Times, the Washington Post, and some others, CNN. Uh, And I mean leak leaks, like classified information finding its way to reporters, all in an effort to hurt the Trump administration, undermine specific individuals in the Trump administration, most notably the president himself. Where did all that come from? How many people have been found as the source of those leaks zero so far but that may change i don't believe that mid-level people at doj or or you know any of the intel agencies are deciding to take it upon themselves to wage one man or one woman warfare against the trump administration the seniors do that the the, the top level the executive suite the People with a lot of access who are already used to interacting with the media in a way that the rank and file don't. The rank and file risk their jobs for hanging out with the media in some of these places. I mean, you, you cannot do it. But the top folks, you know, they go to fancy parties and they'll go to the correspondence dinner and all that. How is it that we haven't found any of them yet? Well, I think the answer to that is that we haven't looked particularly hard. Well, that might be changing. I know Attorney General Sessions friend of the Freedom Hunt. Uh, I know that he is looking into this matter specifically because crimes were committed. No question, crimes were committed. Assuming that information was classified and we have every reason to believe it is, then that would be illegal. But 
wouldn't it be interesting to see if the former director of national intelligence may have, may have, I can't say did, but may have leaked information about a, uh, a dossier to get the whole thing started. I'm sorry, the briefing on the dossier specifically, like like told the media that Trump had to be told about the dossier. That is a form in itself of circular reporting, right? If you are the DNI and you are making the choice of what goes into the president's folder and you include some crap lousy dossier that you know includes the stuff about the golden showers and all that just garbage. But you make that decision and then you also... You also decide to tell the press that the decision was made to include that in the briefing. You've created that news cycle. You created that story wholesale, right? Not only are you telling the press something you shouldn't, but you are the reason that that thing happened in the first place that you then chose to tell the press about. Almost like what we've seen all along with the dossier and the efforts to use it in the FISA court and everything else, right? The you know, one source was used to support another source, which was used to report the initial source, which was used to get it. I mean, it's just all running around in a circle and it's a pretty tight knit group that we're really looking at for this stuff. And I just think there's the very real possibility that we may at some point have someone who was a senior Obama administration official, very, very senior, who would have betrayed his or her oath and violated the law in a fit of Trump derangement syndrome. It, it's going to happen. We're going to we're going to get somebody. And it's not going to be some some rando that no one cares about. It's going to be a name, you know, and it'll be very interesting to see the Democrats circle the rank. They will. That person will be treated as a martyr of the of the greatest caliber. That person will be treated like the true patriot by most of the media because they're going to their their opinion of this is, yeah, you got to break the law to stop Trump. Go for it. Whatever you have to do, doesn't matter. They're going to be all in favor of it. So we need to keep an eye, keep an eye on that story. Um, I can't say that we know yet exactly what's going to happen, but there's the very real, very real chance that at some point it will be, uh, it'll be unearthed. It will emerge that one of Obama's top people was playing dirty. And I mean, top people in government, in the intelligence positions. I, this has always been my problem with Brennan for the last week or so. And be, before that, I expect something different from people in the intel community and people in the military. And to see all these former senior intelligence chiefs that are just partisan hacks who are leveraging that they were recently at the top of the intelligence chain for petty partisan ends. This is this is unacceptable. It is gross. And people should know that. All right, we got a, we got a big third hour coming up here in a few moments. I just want to tell you what what we've got. Uh, I've got the update on the Las Vegas shooter case. The videos have been released. I watched them. I'll talk you through what you see in them. Some new information, but a lot of it is confirming what was already believed. Uh, we also will discuss some of the new information about the Austin serial bomber. And then I'd like to, if I have time, get to the latest on some of the, uh, what are they, do we have like a term, the Parkland uh, political movement? I mean, I don't know, the never again kids, 
whatever we're calling them. I don't know what their hashtag, the hashtag never, you know, hog and company. Uh, we've seen some very interesting. Um, we've seen some very interesting commentary from, from him recently and the way the media is, the media is exploiting these kids in ways that I, I think that the kids are bringing a lot of them on themselves, but the media is exploiting them in ways that's really unethical. Uh, so we'll talk about that. And then also, of course, I, I would I would be remiss if I did not note that Trump may have had his greatest single tweet ever today, which is really saying something for this president. It, it, but it is quite possible that Trump had, in the history of his Twitter account, his single best moment. The, the piece de la Trump, or de la resistance, or whatever. You know what I'm saying. We'll be back. He's holding the line for America. Buck Sexton is back. Welcome to Hour 3 of the Buck Sexton Show. We have uh, the video to talk about from the uh, Las Vegas mass shooting from many months ago now. But first, just some updates on the Austin serial bomber. So Mark Anthony Condit, 23-year-old, we know that he blew himself up. We know he was the bomber. And now we're trying to go through the, well, who was this guy and how did this happen? Um, How did we find ourselves in a place where this individual was trying to engage in mass murder, uh, mass murder by bombing? And so far, not a whole lot of information that suggests that we could have known, or not we, but the people around him could have known that this was happening. He was part of a Christian survivalist group, I've seen that reported, called Riot, Righteous Invasion of Truth. Uh, and he was homeschooled and was taught gun skills. But there are millions of kids who are taught gun skills. I don't know. I don't even know how many kids are in homeschool. Do you have any idea how many kids are in homeschool? I don't know. It's a lot. Um, but... None of that sticks out as anything to be anything unusual, anything to be concerned about. Just, okay, so he played role-playing video games. He sometimes talked about uh, weapons and explosives, but so did a lot of people I know. Um, I mean, especially in the circles that I used to travel in, but, you know, this is this is not anything about him that seems to be uh, remarkable in the run-up to this. He has extended family in Colorado. They say that, Nothing really about this. Well, they didn't see it coming, and they're shocked. And they don't know what the motive is. There's a 25-minute video on his phone where he confesses to the attacks. I just had producer Mike check. that No no clips from the video are out yet. I've been looking for them all day. Um, but there's nothing, there's nothing that we can say about the video other than he, he admits to the attacks. I'm assuming he rambles on about a whole lot of other things. We don't have details on law enforcement from that just just yet. Um, He was caught because of his FedEx office stop. The CCTV footage in that was very important to track him down, as I thought was the case at the time. And that's really all we have. Otherwise, people say he's quiet, relatively relatively normal, harmless-seeming 23-year-old, and turned out he was a serial bomber. How he could have how he could have transitioned into that that kind of evil, that level of darkness, I have 
I don't know. You know, with, with jihadists, I'll say this. There's a, uh, a whole psychological seduction that goes into the radicalization of, of, of jihadists. You know, they're, they're shown videos of uh, terrible atrocities, you know, abroad, and they're, they're told that, uh, that American soldiers and, and our allies are killing women and children indiscriminately, doing all kinds of terrible things, and that it is their, it is their moral obligation to be a righteous soldier for, for Allah and all this stuff. And it, it's, it's wrong and it's crazy, but at least it, it follows a pattern. It follows a pattern. So you understand how they do this, right? You understand how the brainwashing occurs. All of a sudden, someone could think that it would be moral or ethical or even a, a um, necessity to kill innocent people with a suicide bomb or anything like that overseas as a jihadist. With someone like Condit, uh, no history of abuse that we know about, no, um, no history of severe mental illness. They're just, they're just saying that he was kind of a, a quiet nerdy kid and decided to become a, a serial bomber and went, went through a, a lot of trouble and planning and everything else to do this. So I don't have much more for you on than that. I think we'll have a lot when the 25 minute video is released. And, and also, as I mentioned to you, we have the video now and you can see that of the Vegas mass shooter. Um, so that's what I've got for you on the Austin serial bomber case. I, I want to switch Switch gears for a moment, though, um, because and so this is a usually I don't I don't mix stories in one segment, but I, I just wanted to mention that there's still this uh, movement afoot to use the some of the more visible youths from the Parkland school uh, that was the scene of that mass uh, school shooting for the purposes of curtailing the Second Amendment for gun confiscation or gun restriction, all that, all that stuff. And. They appeared, some of those stu- uh, students appeared on MSNBC last night. Well, I wish you guys success. I wish you resilience. I wish you the continuing and lifelong ability to laugh at people who use opinions you don't care about, <laughs> who share them with you anyway. They're right here. I know. <laughs> kind of starstruck. All right. So it's uh, Sarah Chadwick, Jackie Corn, and Emma Gonzalez right here. They're here with me. <laughs> That's right. $10 million a year news anchor Rachel Maddow says she's starstruck by the Parkland. Uh, and remember, this is just some of the Parkland kids that get a lot of media attention because I say what the media likes. We have a, an interview. This just came through, and this is courtesy of the Daily Wire. They're, they're where I found this. With David Hogg, who's probably, uh, Gonzalez is also very well known of these students pushing this anti-gun agenda. Uh, but Hogg is the one who's the most well known, I think. And he gave an interview to one of these new liberal sites i don't know what the site is even what's it called the outsider or something yeah the outsider the outsider okay i got it right look at that uh he gave an interview we had to bleep it out but this is what he says this is what this person who is elevated by the media by the likes of maddow and others says about the nri play they're pathetic that want to keep killing our children they could have blood from children spattered all over their faces and they wouldn't take action when your old ass parents like i don't know how to send an i message and you're just like give me the phone and you take him you're like okay let me handle it and you get it done in one second Sadly, that's what we have to do with our government because our parents don't know how to use a f-ing democracy, so we have to. We think what sick f-ers are out there that want to continue to sell more guns, murder more children, and honestly just get reelected. Where, what type of person are you when you want to see more f-ing money than children's lives? How, what type of f-ing person does that? Yeah, that's the uh, 
that's the the vanguard now of the anti-gun movement after Parkland. That's the person who's been on. He's on the Bill Maher show, of course. He's on CNN, MSNBC all the time. Uh, here's what I can say. Um, he's not very smart and he's disrespectful. So you have that. That's just the truth. Uh, and the fact that all these news organizations have been elevating him up while he says things like the NRA wouldn't change their minds if they had the blood of children splattered on their faces. You know, a week later, he'll be saying we need respectful dialogue, but just don't forget who these people are and the adults who are putting them forward as victims to shame politicians into taking action. All those media outlets, CNN, the Bill Maher show, they should be ashamed, but they're not capable of shame. Clown shows is what they are. The surveillance footage is remarkable in its banality. It shows Stephen Paddock, the Las Vegas gunman, in the days before his mass shooting. He cuts a lonesome figure as he moves through the Mandalay Bay Hotel, playing video poker for hours in the casino, buying snacks at a newsstand, watching a LeBron James interview in a restaurant, and at times chatting with hotel staff. The Las Vegas shooter who killed 58 people, injured over 500, wounded over 500. Um, He is now uh, shown in videos that have been released from the Mandalay Bay Casino uh, exclusively to the New York Times, uh, which put out a video series on it today, which I watched. And it's it's eerie. Um, I I have to tell you, if you get the chance to watch it, I I would recommend it. You have... Stephen Paddock looking like just another somewhat schlubby guy at the slot machines. You know, walking around, he's going to a sushi restaurant, he's he's uh, playing the slots, he's going about his business, talks to some employees. Everything seems completely normal. And now we have the surveillance footage that we've all known has been around for a while. The surveillance footage of Paddock moving bag after bag after bag into his two rooms that he actually booked in the corner of the Mandalay Bay on the 32nd floor from which he unleashed uh, the thousand or so rounds um, on the music festival across the street. He planned this meticulously. He planned this meticulously, and uh, he absolutely measured it out. He made some stops that you see on these videos. He made some stops at uh, a residence that is outside. I forget the name of the town that was outside of Las Vegas. He bought a bolt-action rifle and went to a shooting range. The guy liked to spend a lot of time at the range. But in this video, what you see are just, all of these bags coming in one after another. And the roller bags, it just, it just looked like luggage. The, the people were saying originally, oh, he couldn't have brought this all by himself. No, he did it over seven days, piece by piece. He's just rolling in one bag after another, rolling in one bag after another. And they're helping him with it. The staff there, 
has no reason to believe. I mean, there's no signs of any kind that it is a situation that they should be concerned about. And then you just see him walking around as though he doesn't have a care in the world. Guy has all the urgency of somebody who's a, you know, a retiree who's just kind of hanging out, shooting the breeze. I mean, he's not, there's nothing about him that's remarkable. Except that the entire time, because he was he, he moved the weapons in over seven days, it had to be on his mind what he was going to do. He also rented a room up the street that overlooked another festival, another music festival uh, that was up the Las Vegas Strip. And he maybe was planning to hit that one first, or he, he did, I would assume that he did reconnaissance of both and figured that the Mandalay Bay gave him a better vantage point. Um, and then that horrific scene ensued where he just let out one, uh, one, one blast, one, uh, one series of rounds after another, uh, burst after burst after burst. You see all these modified ARs in the room. Um, well, I can't actually tell in the photos if they're, which ones have bump stocks and, which ones don't, but he's got, I think, at least nine long guns in there. He had uh, extended extended magazines. I think he had a 100-round drum, but I, may, I, might have, I might be mistaken on that one. It was methodically planned, though, and there was no one helping him bring the stuff into the room. And he kept a separate room next door to the suite where he did, most, where he did the firing. Uh, he kept a separate room next door. You have to watch it because it is incredibly unnerving that any human being. Remember this. He didn't snap. It wasn't a spur of the moment thing. He didn't. It wasn't that his wife just left him and he just wanted to kill as many people as possible. In the uh, beginning of the shooting, and this this is all on video as well. It's it's tough to watch. I'll I want to be clear about that. The, the moments the stuff in the in the casino is not, but the moment he opens up because there's a lot of uh, first person footage from the uh, the grounds of the music festival. And initially, there's a couple of very faint pops. He, he fires off a few rounds at a time. There are two theories they talk about as to why he did this. One is that he was just trying to see if he had measured out the range properly. So he was zeroing it in before he wanted to unleash bursts, uh, extended bursts. And the other is that he might have actually been trying to see if he could, uh, to start this whole thing off, hit these fuel tanks of uh, jet fuel that were beyond the uh, beyond the actual grounds of the music festival. Um, they have nothing to share at this point still about motive. It's hard to believe, but they really don't have anything to share when it comes to motive. They don't know why. They don't, there's no insights that I've seen that were worth anything in terms of the analysts that are out there. Um, they've done a brain exam on him, and they, they just have nothing but questions here. I, I'd like to tell you that I have a, 
an analysis of this that will explain things that I I, I think that I've got this one uh, nailed down, and I, I just don't. Never seen anything like this. The biggest mass shooting in modern American history, and no, no, there's nothing about this guy's past, nothing about his background that would make you think, oh, well, you know, he was someone to be on the lookout for. It's In that sense, it's additionally terrifying. I always feel like when we know that somebody was a problem, we just failed to deal with them. Well, we got to make we got to figure out better procedures. We ha- we have to come up with a way to deal with uh, deal with them. Right. But at least we know that we could have done something with this guy. I, I don't know. There weren't teams of people that the teams of people helping him were the bellboys, the bellhops, the, uh, you know, the staff in the Mandalay Bay. That's who was helping them. They didn't know. The response, and I, I don't know, we'll see. Some of you in the law enforcement community may really disagree with me here, but uh, the response seems pretty. I'm talking about in the hotel. Outside, you just got to get to cover, get people to safety. I understand it's mayhem, it's carnage, and it's, it's horrifying. Inside the hotel, the security response from the security guards still seems to me to be just weirdly slow. You know, they couldn't figure out where it was. I mean, they got a guy who's shooting through a door at them, and it took, uh, I think, seven minutes before they got police up there. I have to go back and even look at the timeline. I also don't understand why we were given so much incorrect information about this in the, the not just the first few days, but in the really the first two weeks after it. Uh, we're given timelines that were wrong. So uh, I would recommend if you if you are someone who still wants to know what really happened here. I mean, he transported 21 bags over the course of seven days. He jokes with staff. He passes out tips. He's just hanging out, playing slots, eating sushi, bringing bag after bag of various semi-automatic rifles into a hotel suite overlooking a concert the whole time planning to just shoot as many innocent people as possible. It is it is as dark and evil as it gets. And nobody could have seen this thing coming from what you see in these videos. Nobody would have known. They, they didn't have the, the, the bright neon signs here. They didn't have the red flags. None of that. He was taking his time and seems to me that maybe this was just a person who wanted to go out in a, in a blaze of evil glory. And that's that was the only motivation that I can see to this. He's back with you now because when it comes to the fight for truth, the buck never stops. I wanted to get into, if you notice in the national press, talking about Trump's behavior, his personal behavior. But what he said he did and does is a textbook definition of sexual assault. And think, no, no, think about this. So he's going to talk about his personal stuff. But it's more than that. He said, because I'm famous. Because I'm a star. Ah. Because. Get off my lawn. I'm a billionaire. 
I can do things. Other people can't. Can't. What a disgusting assertion for anyone to make. Disgusting. The press always asks me, don't I wish I were debating him? No, I wish you were in high school. I could take him behind the gym. That's what I wish. Take him behind the gym, Joe Biden says. I got to say, of all of the, uh, the, the Trump feud so far, this one is among my very favorite. Because first of all, you get Biden there, who's clearly uh, trying to, to give his, his lungs a workout in preparation for a 2020 run. These guys all have the Larry King disease, folks. They think they're the only, and it's true of ladies in the profession too, but they think they're the only ones who can do the job and that they're needed. Oh, where would America be without blue-collar Joe Biden? The answer is exactly where we are right now, because we don't care and we don't need him. But he thinks we do. And he went after Trump there. Take him behind the high school, he says. You guys ready for the, for the Trump response? First of all, I, I, I got to say, of all the Trump tweets, this is among my very favorite from, from this morning. Mark it down on your calendars. March 22nd, the day of the greatest Trump tweet of all time. Crazy Joe Biden. This is what Trump wrote. Crazy Joe Biden is trying to act like a tough guy. Actually, he is weak, both mentally and physically. And yet he threatens me for the second time with physical assault. He doesn't know me, but he would go down fast and hard crying all the way. Don't threaten people, Joe. (laughs) I I, I was reading this this morning. I just kept reading it. Over and over. I think it might be the only tweet that I've read aloud to myself just because I it's so fun each time you read it. And, you know, there's a part of me that wanted to wanted to yell to Trump. Uh, sweep the leg. Sweep the leg. No mercy. No mercy. <laughs> These guys are like ready to just tussle out there. I think they're both in their 70s. And while there is such a thing as as old man strength, I don't know if you ever come across it, but those of you who ever got on the wrong side of your grandpa, you know what I'm talking about. Old man strength is a real thing. It's fierce. It's there, and it surprises you. Uh, but I, first of all, if we if we did go back in time, uh, Trump Trump is like six three, and he's actually a pretty big dude. So way back, I see. But not. I was going to say way back in the day. Clearly, Trump would be victorious if they were to have engaged engaged in pugilistic combat of some kind Uh, high high school biden i'm talking about now and high school trump Uh, but now i think they should be a little bit a little bit beyond this uh it it's a little bit like the scene in step brothers i don't know if you've seen that movie where they're just like wrestling out in the lawn and it's all going crazy and haywire but of of all of the of all of the trump tweets all time Quote, he doesn't know me, but he would go down fast and hard, crying all the way. Don't threaten people, Joe, is among my very favorites. Reminds me of this, this kid that I knew growing up. Uh, his, name was, his name was Kyle, and we were all at the gym once, and we saw his dad. And his dad had old man strength. You know, his dad was one of these guys who would be out there, and you could see, like, there was a fierceness. There, wasn't a lot of we- there weren't a lot of weight plates moving, but there was a fierceness in all of the Cybex machine, you know, all the Nautilus machine movements that he was doing, you know, like, like he was angry, you know, he was in his fifties and he was angry. Um, 
and I was like a teenager, we're talking about back in the day here. And I just remember he said, is, is the son walked over to dad and he's like, uh, you know, hey, dad, you know, you keep working out. You may be able to actually, you know, go a few rounds with me. He said something kind of, you know, joshing him, just messing around a little bit. And his dad goes, Kylie-o, if, if, if it were you and me, there'd be two sounds, me hitting you and you hitting the floor. <laughs> I always remembered that. I was like, eh, it gets the point across. So anyway, the, the the silly tough guy talk from uh, any any politician at this point is pretty pretty funny. Um, I just like that Trump told uh, Trump called him uh, mentally and physically weak, <laughs> just like across the board. Don't get into an insult contest with Trump. This is like getting into a prickly contest with a porcupine, folks. You will lose. Trump is better at the insults. He is just better at the insults than the uh, opposition they of all the places they're gonna go this is the one that they should be the most certain they will lose he really has a gift for nicknames and slapping people down for for buck slapping people if you will that was like you never seem to catch on it's actually very simple although i guess we'd have to call it a trump slap i guess so we're gonna hit a break here we'll be back with roll call Let's get right to it, because we have a lot of great messages today. Let's hop in to the roll call. Team Buck, it's time for roll call. All right, these are coming to us courtesy of our email box, which is officialteambuck at gmail.com. And you shall now hear from yourselves out there across the country. We have Ryan in New York who writes, Hello, Buck. Love the show. Love your insight. And maybe above all else, love the wit. Well, thank you, Ryan. I'm typically a day or two behind because I primarily listen to your podcast and most often doing that during my commutes to and from work. On the subject of school safety, I've often wondered why we aren't simply uh, co-side ring an approach hmm, uh, whereby we bulletproof the walls, windows, and doors. Perhaps there's even a cost-sensible approach to it. For example, is there such a thing as a Kevlar membrane that would be installed beneath a layer of sheetrock? Hurricane-proof windows would stop small-caliber bullets, the point being that the school would become a safe haven rather than shooting a fish in a barrel. With that said, I'm very much in favor of concealed carry for licensed gun owners, which would also be a deterrent. Of course, like any rational person, I know that nothing will stop a highly motivated psycho. Thank you for being a voice of reason in a world of lunacy and deception. Shields high from Ryan. Uh, Ryan, I'm with you on the concealed carry, and we obviously just saw a couple of days ago a armed school resources officer who stopped a shooting and confronted and killed a, a school shooter. So the evidence is clear on that. It, it can work. It can help. It can stop uh, mass loss of life in a school. In terms of hardening the target as a function of the facility, making the walls bulletproof, it's just cost prohibitive for one. And I don't know that that would really stop all that much because remember, sure, people can be hit through doors and through walls, but for the most part, a shooter is going to be trying to shoot the people that he sees uh, out in the hallway in a school. And on top of it, I just 
am one of the few people I feel like who's willing to say it, but it is true. School shootings are not as common and as uh, large a problem from a policy perspective as the media would have us believe. This is about guns. The narrative is about stopping people from owning guns. It is not primarily concerned with stopping school shootings. So thank you very much for your note, my friend. Um, Brandy is next up here. Hi, Buck. Love your show. And I'm OSS, Original Saturday Squad. I'm a podcast listener and just now catching up on Friday's show, including the Irish movie quotes. I recall a listener once suggested you check out the movie Boondock Saints. So I have to reiterate that suggestion because that has to be the best St. Patrick's movie out there. Although as an animal lover, I would recommend just fast forwarding through the cat scene as it is pretty awful. Well, Brandy, thank you for the note. I have never seen Boondock Saints. I had some friends in college who were big fans of the movie, and somehow it escaped some of my weekend movie binge sessions when I was an undergrad. I believe it's ultra-violent, so I might have to either fast-forward or skip around a bit, uh, but well, I'll, I'll check it out. I'll see if I can get it on demand on my TV here, and thank you very much, Brandy, for being OSS and for your note. We have another email in here. Remember, officialteambuck at gmail.com if you want to send us your thoughts. Greetings, Buck. Hope you're well. Um, This comes from, whoa, there's a lot in here. Uh, This is from Dave. Uh, Very glad to hear your comments about the land situation in South Africa. It is not surprising this is not covered in the news. Maybe when the slaughter starts, but I have been aware of this for some time. Miss Molly is also very popular here in Alabama. Uh, Alabama, let her know this. Some of the things in these emails will not be appropriate for her. And don't be a fool. Marry the girl if she will have you. Um, okay. Thank you. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to skip around here. And uh, I appreciate very much the, uh, the kind note from the uh, Alabama self-titled Box Alabama Fan Club, Shields High. And then we get one more coming up here on school safety. Oh, wait, no, that was we already did that one. Excuse me, folks. Uh, here we go. Daniel writes, Hey Buck, love the show. I've been a podcast listener since you first filled in for rush. I love the history podcast, but I guess that's dead now. It's not dead. Daniel. We are, I'm just pulled in many directions. It's not dead. I promise you it's going to come back and it's going to have a place where it will live. Uh, and we're going to add more to it. And we, I just needed to do a test run of it. And then I'm going to go back and figure out a way to uh, continue it and make it sustainable. And it really has to do with the time that we're spending on it and whether we go with a, uh, a subscription model for the podcast or an advertiser model, because I can't have uh, the studio time and the things that I do for it if it's just going to continue on as a, as a product that we don't treat as a business. Right? That, that's really the issue with the podcast. We have enough downloads for it to be a business. We just need to figure out which side of the business we're going to go in. But that's what it is. Sometimes it just comes down to dollars and cents in life. And, you know, I'm hoping that there'll be just a few thousand folks out there, even if we do go subscription route. Uh, and it'd be, uh, it'd be uh, the, the price of a cup of coffee once a month. I mean, that's what we're talking about. Um, that there'll be enough folks that really appreciate it that if we did it once weekly, they'd be willing to subscribe. So that's the hope. And that's what we're working on. I'm just trying to fill in the back end side of that. All right, next up here we have Daniel. Hey, Buck, love the show. Oh, no. <laughs> Sorry, this is a continuation of my bad, Daniel. I've got coffee brain right now. I've been drinking too much caffeine. 
and it means that the synapses are firing too quickly. Anyway, black and white movie recommendation is Dr. Strangeglove. Honestly, it is inexcusable that you haven't seen it yet. Also, in the war against the dad bod, you need to enlist the Jocko podcast. You had him on the show. Truly a great and inspirational guy. He's got my lazy self up and getting after it at 0400 every day. Thanks for the great show. Shields high and never forget. It's all in the reflexes. It's all in the reflexes. From Daniel. And now we will get into the Facebook of part of roll call for a couple of minutes at least we'll have a big roundup of facebook messages we got a ton this week uh, on friday for our freestyle but here's what we get and if you want to join in the fun facebook.com slash buck sexton uh amin writes hello mr sexton just wanted to say i love your show always a thriller every night i listen on iHeartRadio. still trying to get a handle on the times you guys come on meaning beck hannity rush and you uh, podcast. My 10 year old showed me what it was and I'm only 37, but I have to ask, are you the secret brother of Tucker Carlson? You guys look so much alike. Uh, I don't believe Tucker and I are related, but you got Tucker and Buck. Which sounds like a great buddy cop show, maybe or something. Tucker and Buck or I don't know, maybe not a cop show, but some kind of a show. Uh, it was very nice Tucker to have me on his show earlier on in the week. As to when I am on uh, 6 to 9 Eastern is when I'm on. That's when I'm on the iHeart app. You can also always listen by going to bucksexton.com. Here we go. Hold on a second. Um, Whoa. Uh, Oh, boy, bud. Don't know where to start with your coverage of Marcus Meacham tonight. First off, I will say... I love your show. You're even keeled. Don't resort to ad hominem. This is from Gentry. Don't resort to ad hominem often, and your points are well-researched and thought out. Normally. That being said, he was not making a Nazi joke. He was, in every sense of the actual context, making an anti-Nazi joke. As a Jew myself, I found it hilarious, as the video clearly starts with him saying his girlfriend loves the dog, so he wants to make it the least cute thing he can think of. This is no different than Mitchell and Webb playing SS officers when one ponders to the other, are we the baddies? because of this skull insignia the Nazis were obsessed with. Uh, his screen name, Count Dankula, has nothing to do with marijuana. It has to do with dank memes. Well, Gentry, do you know where D- dank originally... I- I'm just going to jump in here for a second. Dank memes is what people say now. Before that, it was dank marijuana, sir. I- I'm just talking about the derivation of, of the word. Um, and this goes on for quite some length. Uh, there's a lot going on here, my friend. Shields high, Buck. Keep up the good work. Otherwise, your coverage wasn't that bad. Um, okay, so a few things. Gentry's saying he's Jewish. He's saying it's not offensive. I, I Look, you know, some people find it really... He, he said he's making a joke, gas the Jews. That was one of the things that he said. I, I think that's in really poor taste. So, but... I will note that I'm doing a, I'm doing a segment on a national radio show about this guy in the UK because I think it's crazy that he's in trouble for this. I think it's crazy that he's been kicked off of uh, YouTube and going to prison for this. So I'm I'm in favor of the free speech here. I, I think that was clear from the segment. If we're going to go back and forth a little bit on whether you think that joke is offensive or not, um, you know, to each his own on that one. An, an offensiveness is is subjective, although I think this one is stretching the limits of subjectivity at some level 
Uh, and, and I also love pugs, so I hate that a pug is somehow brought into the middle of this mess. Uh, so anyway, I, I appreciate it. Um, and thank you for writing me. And so there we have it. Some people think that it was not even offensive, folks, according to my inbox here. I'm, I have to do, uh, agree to disagree on that one. But that's actually going to have to close out the Freedom Hunt for today, although I've got about a, a hundred other notes here that I'd love to get to. We'll pick some out for tomorrow. Uh, a bunch of them, actually. Maybe we'll do a, a, an elongated segment towards the end of the show tomorrow in the Freedom Hut of just Team Buck Speaks. This is one of my look. This is the part of the show that I always look forward to. So with that, I'm going to say we're close it out. Thank you so much for being here with me tomorrow. Freestyle Friday. And yes, an appearance by Commie Bear Shields High.